Five ways you can localize your web presence for international SEO with Andrew Martin. The In Search SEO podcast is brought to you by SimilarWeb, helping you build better SEO strategies with digital intelligence, insights, and data. Hey, it's David. What are the key ways to localize your web presence for international SEO? That's what we're discussing today with a man who's worked in SEO for a publisher, a biotech, and an international NGO. He's a technical SEO with 20 years of experience in web builds and SEO. A warm welcome to the Insert SEO podcast, Andrew Martin. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Andrew. Well, you can find Andrew by searching Andrew Martin on LinkedIn, by going directly to Andrew Cams, which is the URL on LinkedIn. So um, that's where he is over there. But um, Andrew, today you're sharing five ways you can localize your web presence for international SEO, starting off with number one, why go international? Yeah, why? Why on earth would you want to go international? I mean, is it to serve the 193 different, well, 193-ish different countries there are in the world? Or is it to serve the 7,000 ish spoken language there are in the world? Or is it to serve all combinations of 7,000-ish languages in 193-ish countries, which I think ish comes to about 1.3 million combinations? Nobody's going to do that. No, just rein it in. Choose your audience and start there. And the kind of things that you would do perhaps to find that audience is to look at existing data. Now, if you've got Google Analytics packed into the back of your website, it is busily collecting the data there for your users. So you can find your way to the country and device language data in your Google Analytics, grab the sessions data for that. And normally I would look at, say, 12-month periods and maybe do three years, or maybe you want to do five because, of course, there was the terrible pandemic that skewed a lot of data for a lot of people. So whatever date range you want to go for, pull that data out and it will give you a list of codes. And those codes will consist of two letters, hyphen two letters. And that refers to the first two letters being the language code and the latter two being the country code. And those two letters aren't just made up on the fly. They actually follow a data standard from the ISO, and that's the Alpha 2 code. So you want to go and look those up. You can find wonderful Wikipedia reference pages for languages and countries, and that will help you to decrypt uh, these uh, different pieces of data. You will see some junk in there as well, uh, which you'll need to decide what you're going to do with. Sometimes this comes from the fact that some browsers don't hand that data over, or maybe they aren't quite coded in a way that follows the standards. Uh, but you should get a lot of insight from this data that you're going to see. And then that will help you to understand who your current audience is. Of course, you also need to think about where does your company or you or your client currently have a presence? Do they have a physical presence? Do they have some kind of brand media presence in other countries? Uh, which languages can the company actually support? Do you have a support team who can speak these other languages? Because if you suddenly go and get a whole load of people to your website who want to buy something or, or make contact with you or sign up to your email list, how are you going to communicate with them when they need you to? So you need to think about that part as well. And of course, there are geopolitical issues as well. 
like wars, trade embargoes, shipping, importing and stuff that you also need to take into consideration. I've heard lots of companies, people in companies say, let's roll this out globally. And it always makes me cringe inside just a little bit because my brain is shouting, no, go local globally. And you need to take that approach with maybe one or just a small number of languages and locations and then roll it out and learn each time so you can move on to the next one. It allows you that time to see how that language is adopted or how that language is used by the search engines and how well it's going to work. I love that phrase, go local globally. That certainly tells you to get a local content writer, get someone that understands the local clients that you're intending to target in, in that particular country and really understand that local market as well. Your 193 countries rang a bell, but 7,000 languages blew me away a little bit. Is, are you saying that Google actually understands 7,000 languages or no, c- can pinpoint which language it is out of, th- out of 7,000? No, I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying that Google can, can understand those. Uh, but if you look up to see how many languages there are, that there are known, I think it's something like 7,100. But every time you look at a different, what seems to be credible source for this, it's different. I've seen figures that are in the 8,000s. I've seen some that are in the 5,000s. It's just that language is so fluid and evolving. And also you've got languages that are spoken by just a small, tiny, tiny minority of people who might be in a very specific geographic area. And also you've got languages that are maybe no longer spoken or not known to be spoken. So you have to work out how you are going to cater for those or are you going to cater for them at all? And it's okay not to provide. And your second way to localise your web presence for international SEO is keyword research in languages you don't know. Yeah, so you definitely need to keyword research. All roads lead back to keyword research. Any SEO knows this. So you need to understand how to keyword research in languages that you don't know. Now, I think I'm fluent in about 0.8 languages. And I like to think that I can read German, speak some Spanish, French and Portuguese. And I know about four words in Icelandic because I learned a Björk song in the 1990s. But I don't think that's enough. And it won't be enough. And I mustn't pretend that it's enough. So the key here in your keyword research is to find native language speakers that can help you to work out what the keywords would be based on what you know the keywords to be in your own language. And using that, you can then use lots of research tools to then find out what those uh, keywords would be like for those other audiences. So there are tools, let's say SEMrush, very good at this. They can offer up search results pages that you can see for a specific keyword, but they can do it by country as well. So you get an idea as to who your competitors are in a particular country for a particular keyword or phrase. When I say keywords, I mean phrases as well, that might not be in a language that you can speak. So using that basis, you can then build out your keyword list for later on as well and use that for your tracking in whatever tool that you're going to use. Well, let's move on to point number three, knowing the difference between translation and transcreation. Yeah, so obviously translation 
is taking a piece of content in one language and changing it to be in another language. That's quite straightforward. But transcreation is a term to describe the process of rewriting that content so that it's uh, better suited to the actual nuance of the language within a particular country and that it also follows the cultural needs of that audience. And the benefit of doing that is that you end up with a stronger uh, resonance with your audience. It captures those little tiny nuances and the respectful language that that audience needs and then helps you to enhance your engagement, improve click-through rates and, and uh, call to actions, and also then ultimately surface your page content to those search results with a stronger intent than maybe some of your blunter translations through, I don't know, Google Translate might have done. And so important for keyword research, of course, as well, because so many keywords don't necessarily have significant significant volume in other countries. But if you find a different way to say it, you might suddenly unearth a significant opportunity. Yeah, I've, I've seen differences, not just the usual suspects between British English and American English, just because of spelling, but I've also seen differences between British English and Australian English and English in different countries. And even with English, it's within English itself. If I was to say to you, David, how how many different ways can you rename a chip butty? And hopefully you know what one of those is, but maybe some of your uh, viewers don't and listeners don't. Are you, are you presuming because of my Scottish heritage that I know what a chip butty is? Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> I was not, not saying that at all. <laughs> but a chip butty might be a roll with chips in it. It might be a bun with fries in it. It could be a cop with chips in it. There are so many different ways that you could describe exactly the same thing. And you can see these nuances in language, which to me is utterly fascinating. But an SEO needs to know that there are differences even within the same language, depending on where it is. And is Google not getting better at understanding the context or similar phraseology that's used to describe the same thing and serving up the relevant results from there? Or is it still important to target these very specific keyword phrases? I mean, Google does have an understanding of some of these associations, but that's not necessarily going to say that your user is going to feel reassured at that critical moment when they're about to pay for something or download something or sign up for something. They need to know in the language that, that is, well, their first language. That, that's how you're going to get your best results. Great points. Well, let's move on to point number four, which is hreflang. Yeah, so hreflang is a piece of code that tells search engines which URLs represent different versions of the page that you're looking at. So just referring back to those ISO 2 codes again, uh, you need to tag uh, your hreflang uh, with these ISO codes, and that enables you to state the language and the location that's the intended audience for that page. And when a search engine sees it, they understand the relationship between the page they're looking at and the other pages in your hreflang tags. And they understand which version is intended for which audience and that they're not actually duplicate content. And then they will serve more likely to serve them up to the right audience. And is it essential nowadays to have an hreflang alternative within the HTML on, on the page itself? Or can you have it elsewhere submitted to Google and it's, it's not absolutely essential to have it on the page? 
you can have the HTML language tag also in your code, which is kind of an order tag. So you can stake your language there as well as the hreflang. That wouldn't hurt to have them both. But you certainly wouldn't want to make people rely on using kind of in-browser translation for sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge, certainly. Is Google better now at making a decision by itself in terms of which page it should serve up? Uh, because many SEOs or many, many web developers make a mistake with um, hreflang and it's easy to, I guess, direct search engines in, in, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think that the search engines are getting better at understanding the languages. As I mentioned earlier, 7,000 languages, they don't know all of those. But if you're serving up pages in, in a very small user-based um, language, then congratulations. But you'll probably do very well in your SEO. But uh, uh, the search engines perhaps won't understand that so well. But maybe it's about not just the language, it's the location as well. So if you have uh, for example, Spanish and, and French, you know, they, and English, you see, you know, they are language, as I said before, is, is uh, fluid. So it moves around a lot. So if you're targeting particular audiences, say French in Canada, you might want to serve up the French language, but you want to do a version that's specific French Canadians rather than French in France. Absolutely. And another challenge, of course, is that users move around as well. So you might be a Brit in another country abroad, in, in France, for example, uh, and you may well want just to view English language web pages. Is it easy enough to try to ensure that you've detected that um, it's that particular person in that language that is trying to access your site without forcing them to view the French version? Well, certainly do not force people to look at a particular language. There always must be a mechanism that allows users to move between them. But also in your hreflang tag, when you are stating these are the different versions, you know, here's my uh, English version for France, here's my French for France, here's my Danish for Wales. No, well, not may maybe not Wales, but, you know, the different, the different combinations you've got. If there's one that you cannot cater for or you don't, or you don't, want to cater for or you haven't put in your list, then you include a default as well. So it's the X default tag. And that means the search engines look at your little list in your hreflangs and they think, oh, this one's missing. I've got some people who might want to look at this. So they look at your default and they serve that one instead. So it might just be your native language version on your .com, for example, that you serve up instead. And that will be you know, you'll be able to see in the analytics later on, you know, am I seeing that French is increasing? Am I seeing Portuguese is increasing? Do I need to cater for that audience later on? Let's move on to your point number five, which is knowing the special rules in China. Yeah, China is an interesting challenge for SEOs because it's so, it can be so wildly different. And I don't speak simplified Chinese, so that adds a level of complexity because a lot of the tools that you need to be able to do your SEO are all in simplified Chinese. And to some degree, you need to be in China to be able to actually access them or have some maybe proxy technology unofficially to be able to access them. So Baidu is the, is the leading search engine in China with about kind of 55 or 60% of the market share. 
although you're, we're starting to see search engines like Bing and Sogu increasing on that. Uh, now, Baidu has some very different technical uh, requirements, as well as business registration requirements, which can be quite a challenge as well. So some of the Baidu differences are that the hreflang tags are, are mostly ignored. Uh, you should include them in your code because you need to make sure that you mirror them. So if you've got a, a simplified Chinese version of your page and you've got, say, an English version, you need to cross-reference those in your hreflang. Otherwise, it kind of doesn't tally up the verification. So it won't work. So you need to make sure that the tags are in there, but make sure that you also use that older HTML tag that I mentioned a few moments ago, because that's the tag that Baidu cares about. Uh, you should also make sure that you don't incorporate any Western social media either, uh, because of the different complexities about showing those platforms within the audience in China. So exclude from embedding things like YouTube into your pages that are going to be served to China. Um, exclude things that are generally in iframes as well. Baidu doesn't particularly like those. And also, if you're wanting to hide something from the Baidu search engine, which is a legitimate thing you'd need to do from time to time, the noindex tags that work for all the other search engines don't work for Baidu. So you need to come up with a way to make sure that those URLs end up in the very exciting file called robots.txt, which I think Alina Ghost mentioned in her episode. Uh, and that and means that you can disallow the access from Baidu to those pages, and then Baidu will eventually drop those pages or it will stay away from them. Superb and wonderful reference to Alina there. Um, that's um, the sign of um, someone that's hosted quite a few podcasts as well that um, knows how to refer the listener to different resources. But there, there was one other thing that you, you mentioned there that I'd like to just follow up on as well that I hadn't really thought of before, and that's um, the use of international social media on sites that you have hopefully submitted and want to rank on search engines like Baidu. Now, you mentioned YouTube embeds. Would that also include just links to international profiles on sites like Facebook? Twitter, other sites like that. Is, is, it, is it reasonable to have links to those sites and still expect your site to be ranked in Baidu? I think the best practice here would be to avoid linking to the, the websites and social media that is currently banned in China. If you're going to be offering those links to the audience within China, that's going to be seen negatively by Baidu. So I would recommend not even linking to them. And a lot of people link to them in their footers, which is quite common for the rest of the world. Uh, but I would try and have a way where you can have a different footer on your site for .cn. And it might be that you want to actually have a .cn version of your website that you solely serve to the uh, audience within China. And that's a very strong signal to have a, a, a .cn for that audience. And it would mean that you might need to host it in China or very close to China and push it through via a content delivery network. But that might be a simpler way. I, I, I guess extending to your earlier point there as well, is it reasonable if you did that to use hreflang um, to make the search engine aware of alternate versions in different countries and languages? If you have a .cn domain of version of your site, and you've got, say, a .com with all of the other countries and languages on it, 
definitely put your hreflang in there so that you can uh, cross-reference them and make sure that the search engines are aware of the presence of the other because it's helping to avoid kind of cross-pollination, uh, I guess, of the, of the audiences and also to just make sure that everything verifies and is, is uh, happy and not causing you duplicate content issues. Lots to think about. Well, let's move on to the Pareto Pickle. So Pareto says that you can get 80% of your results from 20% of your efforts. What's one SEO activity you would recommend that provides incredible results for modest levels of effort? Well, I love a pickle. And so my advice has probably better odds. So, and I think that it can also be used far beyond SEO if there is such a place. And that advice is fail fast. Failure is vastly underrated and I would encourage everyone to do it. Not all the time, obviously, because that would probably get you out of a job, but do it fast. I mean, make sure that you've identified what success looks like so that then you know what failure looks like. And then having failed fast, you have spent your 20% effort trying to do this thing. It didn't work. And the failure is then worth 80% because you can then learn from it and then tweak your approach, try again, maybe you'll fail again, but you've put another 20% of effort in. And if you've got these small amounts of effort that you're putting in and you fail a few times, then you've only spent a few bits of small efforts to achieve that. If you've put 80% of your effort in and then you fail at the end of it, you might feel like you want to give up or you don't want to do it anymore. So my advice, fail fast. But hopefully fail fast on your own site as opposed to client sites. Exactly, yes. I've been your host, David Bain. You can find Andrew Martin over on LinkedIn. Andrew, thanks so much for being on the In Search SEO podcast. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. Check out all the previous episodes and sign up for a free trial of the Similar Web platform over at similarweb.com.